Well, today we continue our series to the book of First Samuel, and we are in First Samuel chapter 12. I invite you to turn there with me now, First Samuel chapter 12, which can be found on page 233 if you're using one of those black Bibles uh, there in front of you in the pew. <clears throat> Just to let you guys know, I have come down with some sort of illness. I may be making an exit. If I do, Oscar is going to come up here and read straight from my manuscript. We trust you'll figure it out. <clears throat> Uh, our passage today is all about restoration. Have you ever needed restoration? Maybe you've sinned in some sort of way. You feel the weight of it, the guilt of it. And really, whether or not you're going to be restored depends on the person that you're seeking to be restored to, doesn't it? In other words, if you know that they fly off a handle, well, then you can anticipate their response. If you know that they are loving, well, then all of a sudden, the prospect of restoration, doesn't it put you at ease? Given the nature of the person, you want to be restored to. Well, today in 1 Samuel chapter 12, we see a beautiful ceremony, if you will, a time of restitution, a time of restoration. God's people have sinned against him, right? So what are they to do? And we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 12, uh, Samuel, the prophet of God, leading all of God's people uh, to be restored to him. I'll give you a little bit of background of, about First Samuel. Uh, big picture wise, First and Second Samuel are all about God's Old Testament people coming to be ruled by an earthly king. This was the period in the Judges, or at least the very end of it. And so Samuel is the last prophet or the last judge in the period of the Judges. <clears throat> so this period of the judges, you have the people suffer, right? They're oppressed and they cry out to the Lord. The Lord raises up the deliverer and then that person delivers them. But eventually the people turn away again. And so you see in the book of 1 Samuel that this is the same thing going on. The priests, the very servants of God, they were wayward. They were evil. They were wicked. The people of God, they had given themselves to idolatry. And uh, they, it says there in Chapter 8, verse 5, the people cry out and say, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. So what's on their mind is to be just like all the other nations. They want to be victors in battle. And in choosing for themselves an earthly king, what happens is that they actually reject the one true heavenly king who reigned over them. And, you know, God had reigned over his people ever since he had ever since the beginning. But particularly, as God is forming himself a people, we think back to Abraham, as God drew Abraham out. He said, I'm going to make you into a people from all different tribes and nations. <clears throat> and some, one, somebody from your line is going to be a blessing to all nations. And here you see that this people, this group is growing bigger and bigger. But they want to be ruled by an earthly king and not the sovereign Lord. Chapter 11 uh, we see there that the people cry out for a king, or in chapters 10 11, and then God brings them an earthly king. Even though they are sinning, God says, okay, I'll give you this earthly king, and he actually is going to deliver you from your enemies. Uh, and so he proves himself to be kind and gracious and true. In chapter 11 there, uh, a battle is waged, and King Saul, Israel's first king, uh, is the victor. The end of chapter 11, if you just look there quickly, I hope you guys are opening your Bibles. You always want to have your Bibles open in front of you. <clears throat> From verses 12 to 15, you see there that the people have this time of celebration. They announce that victory is from the Lord. It is of the Lord, not even of Saul. 
And then you see there that they have this time of celebration before the sovereign Lord. As they stand before the Lord at the end of chapter 11, Samuel, and then into chapter 12, Samuel takes the time to call Israel to rededicate themselves to their sovereign Lord after they have sinned against him. And as we read this passage, I wonder once again, if you are in need of restoration, of renewing your own commitment to the sovereign Lord. Perhaps you, like Israel, have wandered away. You've chosen other gods to reign over you instead of the one true Lord. Perhaps you've gotten distracted by everything around you, everything in life that distracts you. Perhaps also you've forgotten that the Lord over all has his own desires for you right here today. Well, I pray that as we go through this passage, we are helped to know what to do with your sin and your desire for restoration. I hope that this passage helps us see the choice that you have before you. You can turn away from your sin or you can choose God. And then lastly, how God's grace can sustain you in your Christian faith. God's grace alone. Those really are our points today if you're taking notes. Number one, the sin behind us is in verses 1 to 13. Big picture stuff. The sin behind us, verses 1 to 13. The choice before us, verses 14 to 19. And then the grace that sustains us, verses 20 to 25. And I'll be repeating these points as, you, as we go along in case you've missed it. Let's look at the sin behind us in verses 1 to 13 of chapter 12. As this chapter opens, keep in mind that Israel, once again, is before their sovereign Lord. And this is a very formal chapter. Israel now officially has her earthly king. And so Samuel is going to be stepping back from leading the people and, t- and push the reins of leadership onto Israel's chosen leader, that is King Saul. And as we read verses 1 to 5, listen for how these verses sound very official. It sounds like a court case with uh, the questioning, the testimony, the witnesses, the declaration of innocence and the vindication. Look there, verses 1 to 5. And Samuel said to all Israel... Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you and I am old and gray and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. And there he's talking about Saul, the king. Whose ox have I taken or whose donkey have I taken or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed or whom has or from whom? And oh, sorry, or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Here, Israel testifies about Samuel's leadership. And Samuel, once again, the judge over the people, the leader of the people, is asking them to testify. It seems as if Samuel wants to set the record straight about his personal integrity as a leader, right? Whom have I, uh, have have I defrauded anybody? Have I oppressed anybody? Have I taken anybody, taken a bribe, etc.? Once again, the significance here is that he is the last judge in the period of the judges. This is a closing of an era, period of the judges lasted hundreds of years. And then it is a period of a, a beginning of a new period. That is Israel underneath a king. Now, of course, we know that this points to Jesus, the one true king. But here, this period of the kings begins. 
The king now walks before you. You get this idea if you're reviewing the passage there. You get this idea. You know, he himself is reviewing what's gone on. The king now walks before you. He says, I already have walked before you. That is fulfilling the purpose for which God had given them. Speaking of Saul and himself performing their God-given duties of king and then also as judge. So here, his judgeship is done. He's going to continue to be a prophet. But really, the, 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 the responsibility of leading falls to Saul the king and the handover here is going to be completed. It's also significant because in testifying to the integrity of Samuel's leadership, they're reminded of the godliness they rejected, aren't they? He himself is saying, look, I stand before all of you guys, and here's the king that you wanted, and I have not done anything. And so isn't this a, a sort of quiet rebuke of their own desires to reject godliness? Here they're rejecting a man of great godliness, a man of great integrity, leadership, who had not taken anything from the people. So you keep in mind, if you've been following with us in the book of 1 Samuel, you know that there were the evil priests in the beginning. Uh, Samuel's own sons had walked in those evil people's ways where they were taking bribes from other people, where they were perverting justice. But yet Samuel had not done these things. And so... This is a rebuke. They were rejecting godliness. This is a sad occasion for Israel, really, because Israel didn't seem to do anything when the evil priests, for example, were leading them. Israel wasn't doing anything when they were caught in idolatry. In fact, they were giving themselves to evil, it seems, giving themselves to idolatry. But here is clear. Israel rejects their godly leadership. Now, in light of Samuel's integrity and godliness, once again, Israel's choice in an earthly king becomes all the more strange. They're exchanging godliness, and we know this from the story, for battle hardiness, right? They wanted Saul to lead them into their battles. And then we can keep in mind, too, of what God had said that this, their earthly king would do. The earthly king would rule selfishly. Now, you compare that to Samuel, who was leading selflessly. He was leading the people towards God's righteousness, as we seek to apply this to ourselves today, you know, unfortunately, their rejection of godliness is par for the course uh, for some people who look for leaders uh, who want the leader to lead them where they want to go. So, for example, if we want riches, we might choose a leader who is rich or one can generate wealth, one who can generate wealth. If we appreciate, in other words, if you guys appreciate strength and beauty, well, you're going to choose leaders who are strong and beautiful, lead you to the promised land of strength and beauty or riches or whatever it is that you desire. And in this case, for the church, it's the same. For any church, for any group of people who are wanting others to lead them, so unfortunately, many today, they might seek leaders who will lead them to the wrong promised land. And you see so clearly that their own desires are reflected in their leadership choices. But for the church, God says that his people need to be led by godliness. That is those who will speak of the head that is Jesus Christ and make him beautiful or to be known as, as beautiful as he is already. And then for practical application, well, we need to first appreciate beauty or sorry, appreciate godliness if we are to be looking for a leader who can lead us into godliness. Now, of course, when it comes to last week's uh, members meeting and then sometime in the next upcoming weeks here, we're going to be uh, 
recognizing officially, sort of have a confirmation time. Uh, we're going to be con- confirming David Ng to serve as an elder of First Baptist Church. Last week, as you guys know, we voted on David to become an elder. And I know from speaking to those of you that I have spoken to, you have chosen David, you have voted on him to become an elder because he is a godly man. And friends, you should be encouraged if you have, in fact, voted on David uh, because he is a godly man. If you vote on him because he's one of the tallest men, well... I don't think he can lead you into tallhood. You're in trouble there. But uh, you guys should be encouraged. Why is that? Because just as worldliness will locate worldliness to lead them, so godliness does too. The fact that you appreciate his godliness and testify to it means that you appreciate godliness. At least those of you who I've talked to. And once again, in the upcoming weeks, we'll have a time where David will take formal vows of a handful of questions uh, and where the congregation, too, you guys will take vows as you desire to submit to his leadership. Uh, but of course, in the upcoming weeks, when we have that time, this is not a time to uplift David first and foremost. But it is a time, in fact, to uplift the sovereign God who has saved David, who has changed his heart by the power of the spirit and who is continuing to make him holy and to use him to grow this congregation and and encourage this congregation in godliness. Well, just as we will have a time to celebrate in the future, well, so Israel here is having a time to celebrate. Ultimately, a time to celebrate their sovereign Lord who had brought them Saul. I imagine imagine that just as it may have been a temptation, uh, just as it might be a temptation for us to uplift the man himself, So I think it was a temptation for Israel to uplift the man himself, that is Saul. Uh, And they might have been tempted to do so in an ungodly way. I mean, just think about what they had demanded, right? They demanded a king to fight their battles. And here he is. They had chosen Saul to be their king by lots. Now, according to God's providence, you know, he made Saul uh, the one to be king. But if they're thinking about themselves only disregarding God's sovereign province, then maybe they thought, yeah, you see, finally we have arrived. Here's the man. And then you have his first recorded battle in 1 Samuel chapter 11, where Saul delivers them from their enemies. Just as they had already opted for an earthly king over their heavenly king, it would have been natural for their affections and praise to be given over to the man himself instead of God. And so for those who might be given to exalting man, they would benefit from what Samuel does in our chapter. Samuel redirects Israel, Israel's attention to the Lord, the sovereign one. After Israel testifies about Samuel, Samuel then testifies about Israel. And now from here on out, Samuel, for the rest of the chapter, Samuel is going to move towards exhorting Israel to recommit themselves to God and and, uh, bring about restoration. This is why he starts off there making sure that people know that they stand before the Lord as witness. Look there at verses 6 and 7. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness. So keep in mind, this is formal, right? This is like a court case. Uh, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. Here he just says that this is God over everything. This is, to use the Hebrew language, Yahweh, God over all. And before he calls them to recommit their lives before the Lord, 
he reminds them that their people have been in this similar position before where they had stood before the Lord, but then had forgotten about him. And uh, to some, I suppose that Samuel is one big party pooper. They just won their first battle. There's evidence that Nahash and the Ammonites, the evil guy from last, last chapter, last week, uh, Nahash and the Ammonites were harassing God's people for quite some time. But this is exactly why they needed the reminder to not forget the Lord. Just think about your own lives, right? When you get success, however you might define success, when you get success, right? Perhaps you just finished the school year. Perhaps you just graduated. Perhaps you are almost about to get that job. You know, we tend to think I did it. Or we did it. And then God is an afterthought for your own success. You know, if you have thought that, then you know what it means or what it's like to stand in Israel's position. To be tempted to give glory to man instead of the sovereign Lord. But Samuel gives them a strong dose of reality so that the people can be restored to God. Samuel takes the opportunity to help them see the fork in the road that they stand in front of. He helps them examine both paths, the two ways to live, so to speak. The one path that leads to danger and destruction, and then the other path that leads to genuine restoration and fellowship with their Creator. He says that God's people have been here before. God's people are prone to forget God, and He brings the people's minds to two particular time periods. The first is the Exodus, the second is the period of the Judges. Okay, The first is the Exodus, the second is the period of the Judges. You look at verses 8 and 9. Right, this is He brings the people before the Lord. This is an official testimony, and He reminds them of these occurrences in the past. Look at there, verse 8. When Jacob, for example, went into Egypt... And the Egyptians oppressed them when your fathers, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. That is the land of Canaan, the land of promise. But they forgot the Lord, their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor and into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals. These are the false gods of the people and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of your enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak, Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen. For whom you have asked. Behold the Lord has set a king over you. So you see that. You see there. You have the pattern laid out in 8 and 9. And then you have the pattern repeated in the following verses that we just read. And you see the pattern. Look there again at 8 and 9. We'll just summarize this once again. The people were oppressed. And then the people cried out to the Lord. He is Lord. He is the deliverer after all. And what does the Lord do? The Lord hears. The Lord sends. And the Lord delivers. But then the people forget. Then God moves to judge the people. And that pattern, once again, is laid out for Israel to remember what their forefathers had done. Then you see the pattern repeated. Right? This is the bad news. The pattern is repeated. Samuel continues there in verse 10. The people cry out again during the time of the judges. They cry out. They confess their sin of idolatry. We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served 
the Canaanite gods, the gods of the land. And so they cry out, deliver us again. Do what you did before. Please, Lord, do it again so that we might serve you. They specifically say, do it again so that we might serve you. Do it again as you did in the Exodus. And time and time and time again. This really, these two examples really represent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years here. And in God's grace, what does God do? He hears and he answers. The Lord sent Jerubbabel. It's another name for Gideon, if you're familiar with the book of Judges. And then you have Barak, the, the ESV says there. And then you have Jephthah and Samuel. Samuel here is referring to himself. And what happens? They delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. Friends, that's what happens when God is king over his people. When God's people love and obey him, he delivers them so that they live in safety. But unfortunately, the people's pattern is the same. Look there, verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, that's their refusal, right? God is king over them. They say, no, we want a king, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord, your God, was king. And so the people forget. They forget God's sustaining grace. They forget the power that God had shown in the Exodus, his faithfulness in raising up the judges, his power in working deliverance for his very own people. And so they reject God and opt for an earthly king like all the other nations. And of course, though, we know that God is still faithful. Even though they opted for the earthly king, God would grant them Saul to deliver them from their enemies there in verse 13. Application question for you guys. As we are, or application... Uh, section here we too are tempted to forget god aren't we this is actually the basic stuff of sin i mean fundamental to the sinful nature is to thinking about romans chapter one is to not give glory to god it is to not thank him for what he has done it is to not honor him and recognize him for the things he has done and for who he is we forget don't we all that god has done for us how he's displayed his faithfulness in our lives Specifically, in helping us lay hold of His grace when we have sinned in the past. And how we can lay hold of His grace when we have sinned or when we are going to sin even in the future. You know, while, while some may find Samuel's rehearsal of past sins a little bit unkind, you know, some, right, we, we sit here, we read this, and some of us, if people are going to remind us about our own sin in the past, we think like, man, what are you doing bringing up our own sin from the past? I thought this is forgiveness. I thought this is a bit like a forgive and then forget. And we define that as loving. But friends, that is not loving according to Samuel. He's a prophet of God. It's not loving to God. Proverbs 27, 6 says this. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And that's what Samuel's doing, right? He's wounding the people once again. For what, though? What purpose? Is it so that they might feel bad and wallow in their sin? Well, no, it's once again, he's, he's moving towards restoration. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Do you want friends who wound you, if need be, for your own spiritual benefit? Especially knowing that you are prone to sin in certain ways. Especially knowing that we forget as well how we are prone to sin in certain circumstances. What our history is like with these particular sins. No, we need Samuels in our lives who know us, who are able to speak the word of God into our lives and remind us, as we're going to see, to look to God once again. As we apply this to our lives as individual Christians, we should ask ourselves if we find it valuable at all to have friends by our side doing 
film analysis. You know what I mean by film analysis? You know, it's like you, you got the, the, any sports players, you know, if you got the, the uh, golfer who's going to examine his swing, he wants the ball to go a little bit further, he's going to examine his swing, maybe change things up. You got the basketball players who want to analyze the enemy, their opponents, so they watch film for hours upon hours upon hours. Um, I know this even from jujitsu, the folks that I'm going to be sparring, right? I want to know what, what the moves that they tend towards or do they prefer certain positions on the ground or on top in order to become a better jujitsu practitioner. And sure, you guys know what this is like too. You do this with work. You do this at home. You do it with making coffee. You do this with all sorts of stuff where you want to watch film to see your weaknesses, to see your opponent's strengths that they might be defeated. Friend, do you have people to watch film with you, to do film analysis, to help you see where you go wrong? I mean, or, or do you see people who might point out certain faults of your own, certain weaknesses, or people who want to point out strengths and are threatened by them? And so you push them aside. You never bring up weaknesses. You never see people as God has designed those around you to work. That is, that's the wonderful blessing of the local church, right? To help us all do film analysis with one another so that we might walk more steadily, more faithfully, and in the Spirit of God to actually lay hold of God once again, even in the midst of our own sins and stumblings. Who is this person for you? If you don't have anybody to do film analysis, so to speak, spiritual analysis of your own lives, friends, let me encourage you guys to find somebody. So take the initiative to find somebody and enter into accountability with them. And really by accountability, I just mean like regular, godly, biblical fellowship, godly, biblical friendship. It presumes that we would be opening up our lives and saying, hey, man, would you help me with this particular thing? Like, this is how I sin. Help, help me look to Jesus Christ today. And you want to see these people not as threats in your life, but good helps to direct you, right? We've got to think that there are people, the people here who are sitting around you are people who want to work for you and not against you. I was talking with one particular brother, and he was saying that he and his wife, you know, they, they want to remind each other when they might feel threatened or when they might feel like they're tempted towards sin. They want the other person to know, look, I am for you. And so this couple, right, they're gonna, they remind each other. So that way they're, they think like, okay, you're actually for me. Well, let's run the race of the Christian faith together. That's the beauty of the Christian church, the beauty of the local church. Well, Samuel is this for the Israelites, the prophet of God watching film, spiritual analysis. I hope you have somebody like that too. What you do is you ask them to get together, ask them to hang out, spend time together. Now, keep in mind, friends, that you do not need to have the same hobbies the same interests as the other person to do them spiritual good. You have to have, though, the same spirit that binds you together, the same Lord Jesus that rules your hearts even now. And this is going to benefit you both as you seek to walk with eyes on Christ, no matter how difficult this uh, temptation may be. Once again, this is exactly the role that Samuel here is playing for the people. He reviews the so-called tape. He encourages them and warns them about the seriousness of the choice before them this brings us to point number two the choice before them samuel is in verses 14 and 19 by the way samuel reminds israel that they are at a unique junction in their life as a nation this was their fork in the road where they could either do what their fathers before them had done that is forget the lord or do as god had was calling them to do that is remember the lord 
in verses 14 and 15, if you look there, we see these two roads, these two ways that end up in two different destinations. Look there. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. You can see how they can either give in to sin and forget the Lord, or they can choose to love the Lord their God. Now, if you are visiting with us and you hear these phrases of fear the Lord, serve the Lord, obey the Lord, don't rebel, it might seem a little bit off-putting, as if God were like some distant God of the Bible, who simply wanted slaves to rule over, or something like that, right? If that's all, if we just took that verse and that's all we were thinking about who this God is. Well, friends, it's very important to remember that this language comes in the context of God's established relationship with His people. There already was a relationship. If you remember, God had created people in the very beginning to live in a, in a good, glorious, perfect relationship with Him, where He was to rule over them in perfect love, and they were to respond with great, trusting submission. But the people rebelled. They sinned against God. They themselves wanted to be king. <clears throat> but what does God do? Does God, let, does God start over? Does God say to, to somebody else, hey, let's trade, let's trade. Okay, these people are messed up. They're not worth their, their value anymore. So we want to get rid of them and start all over again. No, God doesn't say that. God in his grace and kindness draws near to Abraham. And he says, look, out of you, I'm going to make a people. God draws near to his people and enters into relationship with them. He already knows that they are going to sin just as they had sinned in the garden. He knows that they are going to sin against him over and over and again but yet he enters into relationship with the people if you want a little picture of what it's like for people to walk away and sin against their god let me give you some homework you can go home today and read ezekiel chapter 16 read ezekiel chapter 16 and it speaks about god's people wandering away from god over and over and over again but yet god is so faithful this language of blessing for those who follow and judgment for those who don't It's not anything new. Actually, God had laid it out in the law in Deuteronomy. He said, look, this this is what's going on. I'm going to enter into a relationship with you. You deserve death and condemnation, which is clearly in the Bible, ultimately judgment and hell. And God says, look, I'm going to lay it out for you. If you obey, there's blessing. You are my people. But if not, there will be judgment. He makes it very clear. He is just keeping with his promises that he had given to Israel previously in reminding them of these things. Now, as we read this, we really want Israel to take heart, don't we? We want them to take heart because we, because we know exactly uh, how wayward their hearts are. But we want them to take this to heart because they know the power of God's judgment. They had seen it with their very own eyes, what God had done to their enemies. So in 1 Samuel... Chapter 5, for example, it speaks about the hand of the Lord. And here, when Samuel speaks about the hand of the Lord, he's just reminding them of what happened. But three times in chapter 5, the hand of the Lord goes against God's enemies, the Philistines, the false gods, who had hated God and his people. And so they are judged by the hand of the Lord. Keep in mind, they knew that God himself was a stone of help. Ebenezer, which is what we sung. Here I raise my Ebenezer. That Ebenezer means stone of help. And that comes from 1 Samuel, Samuel chapter 7. Of course, we know that they knew about how God delivered their, their fathers, 
from Pharaoh and the Egyptians by the mighty hand of the Lord, sending plagues and judgment in the Red Sea. But knowing how forgetful his people are, as is clear by Israel's history that Samuel is reviewing, the Lord gives them another glimpse of his power, another reminder. Look there at verses 16 and 17. Well, actually, let's, let's repeat 14. Let's start at 14. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? Now, the reason why he brings up the wheat harvest is because it's in May, May or to June. OK, May to June. Just think about that. Um, he goes on to say, I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. Now, that's what's strange here during the wheat harvest. It was so rare that they would have rain. It's like it's a bit like L.A. County getting snow. It's not impossible, but it's just so incredibly awkward, right? It doesn't happen. It is, is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So you see the purpose there? For why he's going to call this sign of God to come down upon the people, the thunder and the rain. They're supposed to come to know, to see, and to understand that their wickedness is great. That's what it says so specifically there in that verse. You see there the result. Look there at verse 18. What happened? So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. So you see what happens that this sign, this miraculous sign of judgment, of power, of holiness. We, we know this from the, the Exodus when God was meeting with his people at Mount Sinai. There was the thunder and the lightning. Well, similar things are going on here. It represents God's holiness. Um, for us, it's important to, to not shy away from the fact that this demonstration of power was to strike a certain holy fear into the hearts of the people. God did the same once again in Exodus. And so he is doing it here in verse 19. Look at what happens there. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. So you see that this, this sign worked what it was intended to work. It produced a certain sobriety, a certain holy reverence, a fear of the Lord. Now, now, okay, for us, why you, you might be asking the question, why use the consequence of judgment or fear as a means of steering the people on the right path? You know, like, does that just seem a little harsh? Does that seem like a little manipulative to remind the people of the con- that there are real consequences for rebellion? You know, we just have to stop and, and just acknowledge that some object, for example, to using fear of judgment as an aid to guard, to guide hearts and minds, right? This is the, the context that we live in. But I don't have a problem with it. I don't have a problem with it at all. So long as there are actual real consequences that we are being warned of. Now, if there are no consequences, well, then it's just a straight up lie. Then, of course, it's manipulative when the thing doesn't even exist. You're going to put a consequence over the people when it is a lie? No, here, Samuel, he's just being honest. He's just relaying the truth that God himself had revealed. 
So, folks, if there are real consequences, if there is a real judgment, I mean, don't we want to be told what they are? Don't we want to be reminded of what they are? I have an illustration. Uh, I've been known, uh, if you've ever been in the car with me, I've been known to get in the car and to drive for quite some time without my seatbelt. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll make a joke of it, but really I don't mean it. But, you know, the thing will beep at me, bing, 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 and then I'll say, oh, yeah, this is a, a battle of the wills, and watch, I'm going to win. Um, and, you know, after 30 seconds of beeping, you know, the thing stops. Um, it's not something I recommend. Uh, I am just like the Israelites, right? I forget my safety harness in the course of life. But you know what's been helpful for me to remember to buckle my seatbelt? It's the signs that you see on the freeway which say what? Click it or tick it, right? It does the job, doesn't it? Click it or tick it. Now, I'm thankful for those signs. I am genuinely thankful for the warnings. I am thankful for the threat of punishment that they hold over my head. The however many dollars, you know, I hear, I looked it up, it's like a hundred and something dollars for this, uh, these types of tickets. Um, but why am I thankful? Because it helps me be safe. It helps other people be safe. It helps me make the right choices that actually go to increase my safety on the road and also to keep my money where I want it, in my pocket. And so, friends, I am thankful. Well, how much more thankful should we be then for God's warnings about His eternal judgment for sinners? You turn to Colossians chapter 3. Let's go to Colossians chapter 3, New Testament verse. If you're sitting next to somebody who might not know how to get there, just help them get there. Colossians chapter 3. And you see that there's a benefit that Paul sees, the Apostle Paul, in using this genuine threat of punishment that is supposed to evoke fear, right? There's nothing wrong with it. Paul the Apostle did this. And we know that Paul the Apostle produced these scriptures as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, as Peter says. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. Paul says there, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, now he said, that's the command there. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. He speaks in no uncertain terms, right? There is a consequence to the sins that he's speaking to the church that you used to live in, which he says, that's why you should put it to death. Friends, I think it's okay to be motivated by a real, genuine consequence of rebellion. The question, once again, is whether there is a right basis for fear, whether there is a right basis of consequence. Another example, you know, you think about the warnings in Scripture passages. Uh, one theologian says that they're like signs, traffic signs. You know, if you're racing to, the, to a cliff and we don't know that there's a cliff, isn't it in, in the city's uh, kindness that they put a, a sign in the road that says, Cliff ahead! Turn around, slow down, be aware, or you will die. We think, yes, of course. And not only that, though, but we think that the city should do that. It's their responsibility to do that. And if not, we're probably going to sue them because they are failing to carry out their responsibility of caring for their people. Well, friends, the same goes with God. He is being kind here. He's being responsible. He is helping us live our lives the way that He has designed them to live by steering us away from genuine judgment. So we should appreciate these. As one author wrote, it is only when God's, God's people see their sin from His perspective that there is hope that they would turn from it. Once again, if you, once again, if you are visiting with us, 
This here, this event here is a reminder of God's holiness and God's righteousness. And it is not only to motivate God's people as a reminder, it's supposed to inform and motivate you as one who is exploring Christianity. Now, of course, the Bible, once again, speaks in very clear terms about the fact that at the appointed time, everyone will give account to God. But I hope you appreciate these warnings because they are here uh, so that you would be able to, once again, escape judgment. Now, I'm not talking about being a fugitive on the run who is running away from authority, running away from judgment. Not, that's not the escape here. I'm, talking, I'm saying that these warnings are here so that we might seek pardon from the judge who is so ready and so eager to give pardon to those who ask. That's the very nature of God, which we're going to get to eventually. But you must first know what you are asking for. If you see, right, this confession there in verse 19, and all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves the king. And so what are they doing there? They're acknowledging that they are, in fact, sinners before a holy God. We too stand as guilty sinners. Whether or not we realize it or not, we stand before a holy and righteous judge. And in light of his holiness, don't compare yourselves to other people, in light of his holiness, we always stand as guilty sinners before God. But the wonderful thing, though, friends, we need to know this, right? We need to know the wonderful thing is that the judge, who is Lord over all, actually wants things to go well with his people. He actually wants things to go well with you. He wants his created people to flourish, to live a good life underneath his rule and in his kingdom. And proof of this is found in verses 20 to 25. This is, this is point number three here, God's grace that sustains us. Point number three, God's grace that sustains us. 20 to 25, go ahead and look there, I'll read it. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Now, right there, Samuel is clearly, he, he's kind of putting himself on trial. Uh, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you will do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. If you look there at verse 20, you'll see proof of God's good character. What does the prophet of God tell the people of God? He says there, do not be afraid. Yes, you have done this evil, but do not be afraid. These are pastoral comments to sinners who recognize what they've done wrong. The prophet says, do not be afraid. So they understand their judgment. They feel the fear in this verse. But then he tells them, do not fear. So after a glimpse of the mighty hand of God, after the holiness, after their very own fear, after the confession of their own sin, then the prophet of God gives them comfort in God. So the people are not to be left in terror but are to be brought to comfort. But of course, God's comfort should not soften the command. God's comfort should never soften the command. There's emphasis on the command there in verse 20. God wants his people to be brought to real repentance, but he also wants there to be real comfort, comfort in God, the true king. I mean, how important is that? Because the people must have been tempted once again to celebrate strength 
find comfort in their earthly king, deliverance in their earthly king, and so forget their heavenly king. And here as they gather as God's people, we see their hearts are turned to God, right? They confess, they own their past sins, and they own their very latest sin. So some, some here, some of you guys, you might hear what's going on here, and you fear. You know the holiness of God, the judgment of God, the real judgment of God. And you might be tempted then to move away after you're convicted of your sin, to, be, to, to fixate on the things you have done, to focus on the things you need to get done, the perfection you need to attain. And so that makes you quiver and quake before a holy God. But if that's you, friends, this passage here, here in this passage, God drops three bombs that are to kill ungodly fear and guarantee safety for those who turn to God. The three bombs are God's faithfulness, God's reputation, and God's delight. So friends, if you are tempted to think that, God's, that you are out of reach of God's salvation, that God's arm is too short to bring you forgiveness because you recognize the real threat of judgment, see here these three bombs that are meant to destroy this ungodly sense that you are beyond forgiveness. Number one, his faithfulness. It says there, he will not forsake his people. Look there, verse 22. Here, you got all this, this encouragement, right? Do not fear, or sorry, you need to obey. You need to obey God's command. You need to worship him. And then what's, what is this all rooted in? You see there, verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He doesn't say, look, you need to continue fixating on what you need to do. He says, the Lord will not forsake his people. This is powerful, so powerful in light of the people's unfaithfulness, isn't it? They've lived this whole life of turning away from God. And how awesome is it that Samuel here reminds them, don't forget who your God is. He will not forsake his people. He is faithful. And not only that, though, but what's wrapped up in his faithfulness What's wrapped up in the pardon? It is his reputation, right? The second bomb, God's reputation. It is for his great name's sake. For the Lord Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. You know, most people, when they think of God upholding his reputation, they think he's going to uphold his righteousness, right? His judgment in passages like Romans chapter 3, which so clearly he does. But you know, there is so much more of God left for us to know if we've never thought much about God working zealously, tirelessly, to uphold his reputation of being a God of steadfast love. So he says here, basically, you know, don't you dare, you Christian, don't you dare let other people think that my love lasts but a moment. Because according to my word, God says, I say, I have loved you with an everlasting love. From Jeremiah 31, verse 3. You know what he goes on to say there? What God says? He says, therefore, given my everlasting love that I have for you. He says, therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Of course, that's a prophecy. The implication is, and I will continue my faithfulness to you. Because I have loved you with an everlasting love, my love to you will go into eternity. Of course, God is speaking about this to a sinful people. So for those of you who might fear in an ungodly sense, this should invite us really to own our sin, to confess our sin, and then to find comfort in this God. He knows, friend, that you are sinful. So let us then uphold his reputation, his great name of being a God of steadfast love by going to him again in true repentance to know his grace all the more. 
the third bomb that God drops to destroy this ungodly sense of fear, <clears throat> his delight. If you look there once again at verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. It is God's great pleasure to take a ragtag bunch of rebels who once plotted his own overthrow and make them take them to be jewels to adorn his very own kingly crown. We are reminded, aren't we, of Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. Go ahead and turn over there. Deuteronomy 20, uh, sorry, Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. Once again, this is instructive. If you are so fixated in all the things you need to do, so much so that you think that God's grace is beyond you, that he'll never give you uh, forgiveness because all of the bad you have done, and so you think maybe that you need to work to get back into fellowship with God. Well, here we're reminded, well, what made God choose to have this people in the first place? You look there in verse 6 of chapter 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than they, than any other people that the Lord had set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Well, then why? Why does God choose them? Is it because we are the strongest? He says, no. Verse 8, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why is it that God's Old Testament people, God's spiritual people now are God's people? Well, it is all because of his grace. You see then that this chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 12, which does include a warning, which does even include a fear of judgment, this chapter really reminds us of God's grace. It reminds us of, of God's grace in the Lord raising up and sending Samuel. It remind us, reminds us of God's grace in the Lord speaking to the people through Samuel, in warning the people who are prone to wander, in giving them a warning sign to let them know that they are headed towards danger, in comforting them by reminding them of who their God is and reminding them to fear and obey Him. Now, this is all God's grace. Here the relationship is just continuing. In this chapter, we really have an example of what God has always done with his sinful people. Why we are told to think about the great things that God has done for us is so that God would be known as gracious. You see there, right? I mean, I mentioned there that Samuel puts himself uh, kind of on trial. He himself wants to not sin against the Lord. And so he's going to pray for the people. But you see there, you look for verse 24. He says there, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Why? For consider what great things he has done for you. As we conclude, for the Christian, we have so much more evidence of the great things that God has done for us. The evidence of his steadfast love. You, here we are brought to Jesus Christ. As he has sent his son, he did so in steadfast love for the fame of his great name and according to his pleasure. We turn to the cross of Jesus Christ to see these things upheld and proven. For those who, once again, might be fearful, wondering, you know, I've sinned, will God ever forgive me? You might feel the weight of sin, and you question if God will ever accept the repentant. Friends, consider the great things that God has done for his people. He knew that we were sinners, which is why he sent Jesus Christ to take on flesh, to live the life that we should have. 
This is why he sent Jesus Christ on a mission to die on the cross for sinners where we should have died as those rebels. He sent Christ to bear the punishment that we deserve to die in our place. And so the Bible says that he took the wrath that we deserved upon himself. Why does he do that? Because he is faithful. He promised to save sinners. That's what his intention was from the very beginning. He does this for the sake of his great name, that he might be just and the justifier of those who turn to him, but also that he might display his steadfast love in doing so. And he did this for his great pleasure. As the Bible says that he gathered a people for himself without stain, without blemish. That's the direction that he's going. He sanctifies his people so that they would be presented to him as a treasure, holy to his name, without stain, without blemish. Again, if you're visiting with us as a non-Christian friend, this is the judge that you stand before. Yes, he is a judge of righteousness and justice. This is why Jesus died on the cross, because God is just and all sins need to be punished. But God, the judge, is also a loving judge. This, too, is a reason why Jesus came to die on the cross, because in God's steadfast love, he had taken to himself a rebel people and showered his great love of grace and mercy upon them because it pleases him to do so. Do you want this restored relationship with the Lord, your judge, your very own creator? Friends, let me encourage you to repent of your sins and believe. And this warning is for you too. If you do so wickedly, you will be swept away. But friends, the wonderful thing here is that Samuel beckons the people to turn to this great God. And if you know him to be the Lord... He says, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we recognize that even though this passage speaks so clearly about judgment, It speaks so clearly about grace. As we know that Samuel and Samuel's word and the gathering of the Israelites here to be turned back to you is really all about how you work restoration for your people. Father, we thank you. We give you great praise that you are a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. We give you great praise that you are so determined to uphold the fame of your great name. And we know that that includes being zealous that the ends of the earth would know that you are a God who pardons sinners. And Lord, we thank you that you delight in what some of us might consider the strangest of things, the most peculiar of things, of how you take sinners and make them beautiful to the praise of your glorious grace where you yourself receive all of the praise, praise for saving, praise for changing, and praise for beautifying. Lord, we pray that we truly would live in this grace, that you would banish ungodly fear, and that we would be rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy in the cross. We pray, Lord, that you would turn our minds to the cross time and time again to see just how faithful you have been to people who deserve nothing but judgment. We thank you, Father, that you are a just and loving God. In your name we pray. Amen.